The Mom Hour is brought to you by The Essential Calendar. Sarah, this is our favorite calendar for busy moms because its beautiful and simple design shows around three months at a time. Yeah, and with summer fast approaching, now is a great time to get The Essential Calendar and see what I've been raving about all these years. Get 10% off your order at theessentialcalendar.com slash themomhour. That's 10% off at theessentialcalendar.com slash themomhour. Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Megan. We're two moms with eight kids between us, from little to grown. We're in different areas of the country and in different stages of life. But we both know that motherhood's a lot easier when real moms share tips and encouragement. And remind you that it's really all going to be okay. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 329 of the Mom Hour. I am Sarah Powers here with Megan Francis. Hey, Megan. Hey, Sarah. Well, we're really excited today. We're going to talk about our birth stories, kind of. Our birth stories, but not just telling them one after the other, because we decided that might take like four episodes worth of content. (laughs) Can I just be really honest, too? Like four of my births were so similar that this far out of the, you know, away from them now, they're starting to kind of blur together a little bit. So I'm not I'm not even sure how interesting it would be for me to tell all four or all five of the stories. Um, there's just not enough variety. And I'm not even sure which baby was which at some points. I'll do my best. <laughs> they all blur together. So what we did actually was we got some amazing questions from you all in our Facebook community that are really specific. And some of them are kind of short questions that we'll have like a one word answer to. And others uh, will lead to some deeper discussions. But this way we get to talk about our combined eight births, eight birth experiences Um, But through the lens of the questions that you all had for us, which I think is going to be really fun. And Megan, I chose today for this because yesterday was Labor Day and I've always wanted to make a pun or like a content tie in. I'm sure I'm the very first mom in media to make that pun, right? Um, I'm sure. But Sarah, you also have a thing for dates and calendars. So this is like it's like your media brain, your content brain and your calendar brain all coming together at once, which I'm very right. happy and for my, you. My love of puns <laughs> and wordplay. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So yesterday was Labor Day, and today we are talking in part about labor, although as we will get into, I have not been in labor. So we're going to talk about our birth stories. And now I have a confession, and my confession is that I don't love birth stories in the traditional format the way it feels like everybody else does. And and I say feels like because maybe I've I've inflated this, but I had my babies in what I think was probably the heyday of blogging birth stories. And you remember this. This is like 2008 through 2012, 13, where every mom blogger wrote their birth stories, right? Like that was a thing people did. And sometimes there were like, they were long blog posts and um, I would sometimes read them, but I didn't feel super connected to them, partly because I had planned C-sections, which is a very different birth experience. It's still a birth story. Um, But also I just, I felt like it wasn't, I felt like other people ate up and craved birth content. And I was just like, okay, I'm so happy the baby's here. And I loved reading other types of motherhood content, but I just was never super into birth stories. And I feel like I'm the only one. Well, you know what I think is interesting about that? First of all, I, I am a hundred percent sure you're not the only one. (laughs) Um, But you know, I really ate and breathed birth and pregnancy for a very long time, not only because I read, I think literally every book there that was available about birth um, and pregnancy, but also I worked in a birth center for a while. So I was around women having babies all the time. 
But like, I never felt super comfortable telling my birth stories. I don't know why. Like, there was something that felt a little self-indulgent about it. Mm -hmm. And also a little, I know that I was very lucky that I had relatively easy pregnancies and births. And so it just kind of felt, I don't know, like unfair, you know, like one of those things where me telling my story might make someone else feel like their story was less valid. I don't know. Like it telling birth stories and even reading birth stories was never as much my favorite thing as just understanding like the mechanics of it. I was very into the how it all works part of birth and pregnancy. And that lasted for quite some time. But unless I'm like personally really connected to the person who had the baby, I'm just not as interested in a random birth story. So Interesting that we're both leading into an episode about birth stories saying that we're not that into them. But I mean, of course, I'm into my own. Right. Um, just not necessarily like it just never was a big content driver for me. I'm not sure there's any existence of like a written form of my birth story, any of my birth stories anywhere out there. And you were actively writing about motherhood and family life. Yes, like the you, entire time. Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, um, I, and we know that moms, a lot of moms love birth content, but uh, you bring up a really good point, which is like, it can feel kind of alienating. And maybe that was part of it with me is I wasn't seeing my type of birth stories represented. Um, and like you said, if you have a really smooth one or a really rosy one, you don't, you don't want that to, I don't know, just make anybody feel bad. Like you said, so right. I can really see that. Well, and that's why we're so glad to lean on the questions today from the community. Cause it, they're really fun and, and they'll allow us to answer or, or to share parts of the stories really specifically. It takes the pressure off for sure. That's so I appreciate all the questions that came in. Me too. So for anybody new or who just, you know, hasn't memorized our life stories, let's do a quick lightning round um, before we dive in, just so we have the basics covered. So I'll just, I'll just ask these questions. Megan, how many total deliveries uh, have you had? Five. Five. Okay. And I have had three. And I want you to tell me your shortest and your longest gestation. And I basically mean like who was earliest and who was latest. And you don't have to know to the day, but just um, to give people like a range if you ran early or late. So Jacob was about 10 days early, according to the due date we went with. Um, I'm going to say, I think that that was off. Like the due, the, the way they calculated due dates back then was not quite as like dialed in as it is now. We didn't mm-hmm. do the super early ultrasounds. Um, I think I was off with my dates because he was very, very unexpected. So I'm going to say he was a little closer to, to do, but maybe, but maybe a little early. And then let's see, I had one super late, like two weeks late, Isaac, uh, will was like right on time. Like either the day, I think I went into labor, like the night of my, no, I don't remember like a day late maybe. And then Owen two weeks late. There's always like been certain things that have been similar about Isaac and Owen. And one of them was the fact that they were both huge babies that hung around in the womb for a long time. And then Clara was, I went into labor the night, the night of my due date, but she wasn't born until the next day. Okay. So very close. And then two super late ones. Yeah. Um, well, and mine were scheduled C-sections as we'll get into. And so the difference I was laughing, but my, uh, shortest gestation my earliest was 39 weeks in one day scheduled and then my latest was 39 weeks in five days so there's only a four-day uh difference in those because obviously I was scheduled in that window I will say I think I would have been late with everybody because I had no physical signs of uh nothing starting not even the things that can start like 
two weeks before. Um, so right. I have a pretty good hunch. I think my due dates were pretty accurate because I was tracking pretty carefully and all that. Um, but I just think I would have been, you know, a week plus overdue probably. Um, so. And I didn't even answer the question, right? You just wanted the earliest and latest and I gave you all five. Oh, well, fine. We're, we're <laughs> here for it all. The listeners have said they want two hours of birth content. So okay. we're not on all the right. clock. Um, okay. And then just talk through the location, the various places you've given birth. Yep. So uh, Jacob was at a, in a hospital. Isaac was home birth. Will and Owen were both born in a freestanding birth center, so not hospital affiliated. And then Clara was home birth. Okay. So two home, two birth center, one hospital, yep. the whole thing. And um, all three of mine were in a hospital operating room. Okay, Megan. Well, over here at the Mom Hour, we are big fans of our sponsor, Our Place. In fact, you, me, and our team member, Katie, were all comparing notes on our favorite product. Katie was telling us that even though she's packing up to move her family to a new house, she cannot put that mini perfect pot from Our Place into the boxes yet because she's using it like every night. Well, as someone who also has a perfect pot, I got mine as part of their mini home cook duo set. I get it. It's nonstick, which is key, but it also has all these handy features like a steam release lid with a built-in strainer and this nice beechwood spoon that nests on the handle in this perfect little peg. Okay, well, I didn't get this pot, but now I want it. That sounds so great. Our Place's cookware is great to cook with, beautiful to look at, and healthier for us as well. All of Our Place's products are made without PFAS, also known as Forever Chemicals. In addition to their cookware and tableware, Our Place is also making waves with their Wonder Oven, the most stylish all-in-one air fryer and toaster oven. Again, free from the Forever Chemicals found in many of those air fryers. Listeners, Our Place offers a 100-day trial with free shipping and returns, and we've got a great deal for you. Go to fromourplace.com and enter the code MOMHOUR at checkout to receive 10% off site-wide. That's fromourplace.com, code MOMHOUR. Sarah, we both know this time of year can be crazy. So this is a great time to get ahead with no prep, no mess meals from our sponsor, Factor. I love how these meals are ready to eat and delivered right to your door. I mean, you can't beat that convenience, but most importantly, they're seriously delicious. Yeah, Megan, I agree. Our whole family was impressed with the quality and flavor of Factor Meals we tried. And it turned out to be a great option for my teenagers when they got home late from a theater practice or came home from school super hungry. There's zero prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Factor Meals just need to be heated for about two minutes and they're ready to go. Yeah, and for any listeners with wellness goals this month, Factor has six menu preferences to support your lifestyle, whether you're trying to boost your protein, avoiding meat, or simply focusing on well-balanced meals. And you can pause or reschedule deliveries to fit your lifestyle. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. Head to factormeals.com slash momhour50 and use code momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code MOMHOUR50 at factormeals.com slash MOMHOUR50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Okay, Sarah. So before we dive in, I think it's just really important to, I guess, set the stage that we're really, I mean, we always, I feel like, try to do this, like make it very clear we're talking about our own experiences, but with something like pregnancy, birth, labor. I mean, we really can only speak to what we actually experienced. So I know there's a lot of um, curiosity and, you know, like people in our community who probably really would love some resources about 
specific complications and things like that. But if, if it didn't happen to us, we can't talk about it in this right. episode because we really would be here all day. And plus, I don't think um, probably not really qualified to talk about some of those things. But we will, you know, link to some of our favorite episodes and some resources in the show notes. And we just want everyone to know, like, whatever experience you had. I love that ours are so kind of on the far opposite end of the spectrum because it really gives you that um, feel for how different birth experiences can be and still be like totally valid birth experiences. Right. At the same time, neither of us had like a super scary emergency or something like that that we can share about. So, right. um, yeah, just yeah. so just so you know, like we're only going to talk about things that have happened to specifically us. Right. It's like if you don't see yourself reflected in today's episode. That's kind of the point, because we are two humans who are going to share our birth experiences, but we're not aiming to represent the sometimes we do. Sometimes we try to represent like a really wide uh, variety of experiences when we talk about a topic today. We're really sharing our own. So um, there are you're not alone if you had preeclampsia or preterm labor. But that's not what we're talking about today because it didn't happen to us. Megan, do you want to lead us through these first few questions? These are kind of like the warm up questions. I would say they're a little easier to answer and like quick and to the point. Sure. Okay. So Anna wants to know if we knew the baby's sex ahead of time. Sarah, I think I, I'm not hundred percent sure that I remember the answer to this question for you. So surprise me. I did all three times. Okay. Um, and at that point you were still waiting till 18 to 20 weeks. Nowadays you can find out much sooner, but mine were all at the kind of like the detailed 20 week ultrasound. So, yep. I knew. I knew also, again, as well, I had to wait till, you know, 18, 20 weeks. Um, I do feel like if I'd had a boy and a girl, like a boy and then a girl or a girl and then a boy, first thing, I might have not found out with the other three. Mm -hmm. But because it was just boy after boy after boy after boy, there were logistical and also just emotional concerns. So yes. I did find out. Totally. Yeah. Stevie wants to know, were there any complications for the birth, like breach or stuck in a birth canal, placenta? Placenta, Privia, I never know how to say that, gestational diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. I guess I'll go first on this one. Um, no, I, I really didn't have anything that would be technically considered a complication. Yeah. How about you, Sarah? Well, I did have a breech baby, my first uh, pregnancy, and that will, that's the through line here because it led to the planned C-sections. I also have a uterine anomaly called uterus didelphus, which is when your uterus part or all of it is like divided into two halves. And they didn't know how much that was going to affect full, like carrying a baby to full term and or delivery. And they think that may have been why she settled into a breech position just because of the shape of my uterus was different. It was not a complication that was particularly high risk or scary. It was more like, let's monitor this, but we'll get into the whole like breach and C-section more as we move on. But it did figure pretty prominently into my decision not to try the external version that they do with breech babies where they try to smush them around externally. Um, because of my uterine anomaly and it being a first pregnancy, everyone was um, a little, a little uh, hesitant to do that. Just not knowing it's actually, it was hard to tell the exact kind of shape and of my uterus that they were dealing with at the time. So I would say that's a, that was an anomaly. It wasn't a particularly emergent complication. Um, and I didn't have any of the others that Stevie mentioned or, and obviously that's, Stevie didn't list every possible complication, but she was giving us a start. I can't think of any other like big ones that I was at risk for or anything like that. Jenna also had um, a uterine thing, but hers was a, it was a different, slightly different like name. It's a heart-shaped uterus, but yeah. yeah. there yep. And actually for me, yep. they didn't even know which one it was until after 
my first C-section because they're so similar and they don't until okay. they get in there. And I had had even diagnostics done like MRI with dye and like it, I was amazed at how, well, I think they're very similar and how they really just don't know until they literally get in there and look around. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Joanna wants to know, what about birth prep? Did you take classes, books, resources? Um, what'd you lean on to prepare yourself as much as you could for birth? Um, I can go first. So it's kind of funny because I did the hospital class. Like ours was three even like three Monday nights in a row of three hours a piece. And it was after the second, the two out after two out of three that I had been told I was very likely going to end in a C-section. So I was two thirds of the way into learning about hospital birth um, at a pretty like mainstream hospital. And then I was like, oh, none of this applies to me. I will not be doing these relaxation breathing exercises. It was really weird. Like I went to the last one and kind of felt pretty disassociated from preparing for labor because I knew I was having a C-section. Um, I don't, I don't remember. I think then besides that, I had like the, what to expect when you're expecting book, lots of blogs, like baby center and like blog posts online and things like that. But I wasn't, I don't think I dived as deep into the nitty gritty knowledge probably as you did. So, and I didn't do any other classes. So how about you? Um, I mean, I kind of feel like there was not a single book and theory and, you know, preparation that I, uh, I'm trying to think of the word I'm looking for, a technique that I didn't at least dabble in. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a lot about the Bradley method when I was pregnant with Jacob. Um, I had limited success with that. I think that it, you know, the, the problem with things like any, any kind of birth prep for your first baby, you literally just have absolutely no idea. With babies two and beyond, of course, every birth is different, but at least I had a feeling like what might work for me or like I had something to compare it to, like what something might feel like. And and with number one, you just have no idea. Right. So when I'm reading about contractions, I'm like, okay, you know, right? I, or I have no idea what that's going to feel like. Transition. Okay. I understand it'll be intense, but like, I don't, I haven't experienced it yet. So, um, I did start hypnobirthing and I didn't finish it. I know someone had a specific question about that. Um, but hypnobirthing was one that I started to kind of learn. My sister went all the way through it and actually had kind of taught herself, well, was like learning that technique. Um, And I picked some of that up from her and I feel like maybe even took a class or two and I just chose not to go forward with it. And I don't really remember why. I don't remember if my life was just really chaotic at the time or I decided I wasn't into it or just didn't need it. I just just didn't finish. Yeah. Um, And let's see, what was the other one that was, oh, there was one called birthing from within. I think I took two of those classes and then I was like, this is like way too earthy birthy. Like it was just, (laughs) it's very, I feel like there was a lot of drawing and maybe, maybe even like, like drawing your birth experience. It just wasn't me. And then I knew the instructor. So it was super awkward. I had to come up with some excuse (laughs) for not finishing, but I just, I didn't even want to go anymore. And there's some people for whom that kind of thing really, really works. But for me again, like I was so much more about the nitty gritty, like the physiology of what was happening during birth and wanting to kind of like hack my body Mm. to get around that. And I know that, I mean, I truly believe that, you know, mind, body, spirit, like your emotions, your psychological state, all of that hugely influences it, um, how your experience is. But for me, part of like getting my emotional and mental state where I wanted it was understanding the physiological state, yes, if I that can, makes sense. I, so, absolutely. yeah. So, um, I read so much and it's, it was all great that I had so much 
information and knowledge about what was happening in my body while I was in labor and giving birth. But I don't feel like any one particular technique was like the one that got me through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Maria asks, what was the child care plan for older older siblings at home? And did it go as planned? And I'll go first with this. I mean, this is kind of one of the big question because I think there was a lot of kids involved. Um, Jacob was in the apartment when Isaac was born. That was a home birth. Jenna was there with him as his babysitter. Um, But she brought him at the very end and he got to see his brother being born. Um, Will, let's see. Will, I was at the birth center and I don't remember where my kids were. Oh, they were with my sister-in-law. She had come. My sister-in-law, Kelly, from Minnesota, had come to stay for a week or two and she was with the kids. Okay. Um, With Owen... I don't remember. Yeah. They were home with someone. <laughs> and then, because that was a birth center. And then with, um, with Clara, all the kids were home asleep because she was born really early in the morning. And I feel like they all came down the stairs, like either right before or right as she was being born or something. It was like right around that time. Oh. And John was just like, okay, go back to bed. And they were all like, wait, what? And then they all went back to bed, but then they got to come back down. I don't think they went back to sleep. They got to come back down oh. really quick after. So that's awesome. how about, how about you? Well, very different when you know your scheduled date and time. It's like booking a babysitter. So I was eager to hear your answer because I I know it's like there's a guessing involved. Like yes. uh, you you need someone to watch the kids, but you also don't know when. It's you don't booking know when, a babysitter right? like hypothetically. Um, so I, it's interesting that each of yours was slightly like it was a slightly different person each time. Um, yeah. So for mine, I mean, the the easy part about having these on the books and on the calendar is it's during the day. It's not in the middle of the night. Um, I still remember being very obsessed with the child care plans for especially for Allegra when Reed was born, um, just because she hadn't been with a, she had been in daycare, but she had not had a lot of like, I don't know. I, I don't know why I was obsessed with it, but I was. Um, and I want to say she was with my she must have been. I don't know. I actually don't remember. Was she with my parents and then they came to the hospital later? That seems most, most logical. And then Reed and uh, Allegra were at my friend Stacy's house when Violet was born. Um, so that was outsourced to a friend and um, yeah, it was all during the day. I, I just want to say really quick that when you have a birth center, like freestanding birth center birth with um, the kind where it's like midwife owned and staffed, they're often very, they, they deal with your children very differently than what you might be used to, Mm -hmm. like at a hospital. So I have distinct memories of Jacob and Isaac getting to like play with a placenta and make (laughs) prints from it. Like you can like put a placenta in ink and then stamp it. And I have them somewhere in my house, like the prints from Will and Owen's um, placenta birth. But, and I know that that's another thing, like some you know, women want to keep the placenta and some, and I had no desire. I'm like, no, no, that's medical waste. You can get rid of it. But I understand the symbolism around it. I just, I had no desire. You didn't make smoothies with it. No, no smoothies. No, no capsules for me. No. Um, Anna says she loves hearing stories about when and where your water broke in the timeline. Well, this so is all first, you. This is all you. But right. Didn't. Oh, yeah. And so I can go it first, in here. second and third. Yeah. So what's funny about this is I really had to kind of rack my brain. I know for sure. Jacob's, they broke it in the hospital. I like, I remember that being a big thing because they use this thing that looks like a knitting needle in my opinion. I don't, maybe it really doesn't, but in my, in my mind, it looms large as like this big hook thing. Um, Isaac, his broke and I, 
And I remember that because that's how I knew that things, you know, it was time. Yeah. Um, and then Will, I believe, broke in the tub because he was um, all four of my non-hospital births were all water births. Mm-hmm. So they were all born in submerged in warm water and his broke in the water wills because I remember things moved very quickly after that. And let's see, Owen was, I have no memory of Owen's, which means I think it probably also broke in the water. Like, yeah. I don't think it, I don't think it broke. And then I like was like, Oh, it's go time. I don't remember that being part of that story. Clara's broke in bed the, mm-hmm. the night before she was born. So nice. it kind of like half and half. Yeah. Before and during. Yeah. I, that is actually a part of birth stories and labor stories that I also find super interesting. I think because I didn't ever experience it. And it's like, it is the thing that almost everybody can tell you. And it, it varies so widely. It can be like the little yeah. trickle a day before it can be like the dramatic way that you see it in the movies, although it's not usually. Yep. Um, and then it can be the water that didn't break and had to get broken. So I, as someone who hasn't been through it, I also, Anna, Anna asked that question. I also think that's like a great entry into a birth story because it's such a specific point in time. It's not like, well, for right. six hours I was in pain or, you know, like right, it's right. a very specific event. Well, and for me, so, um, three of my kids were born in the wee hours of the morning and, you know, it would always be like getting toward the end of a pregnancy where you really want that baby to be born, but you also really want, or, or maybe like a past your due date you'd also really like to get a good night's sleep before you go into labor. Mm-hmm. And so I have very specific memories of both Clara's and Isaac's waters breaking at like 1am, 2am mm-hmm. and being like, really, <laughs> really? Okay. You there know, just go. Yeah. like, yeah, couldn't this have happened at 6am, but yeah. that's not how it worked for me. Yeah. That's so. so funny. All right. Well, the next set of questions is really, we're going to get into the birth itself and the different stories themselves. Um, and so I'll just throw this one out here. And this is a big one. Which was your most challenging birth and why? That comes from Cindy. And if you want a minute, I can go first. Yeah, you go first. Okay. Well, I had, you know, pretty textbook C-section. So the stories aren't particularly different, but definitely the most challenging one was the first one. And just because of not knowing what to expect. And it wasn't the operation that was most challenging. The operation went as planned. I didn't have terrible reactions. Um, I was very nervous about not being able to breathe because I had heard that was a thing when you're numb from the spinal, um, that some people feel cause you feel numbness in your kind of chest cavity, um, that you feel like you can't breathe even, even though that you can. Um, but I didn't have that symptom. Everything went well. I wasn't super nauseous during the operation or anything. Um, but my recovery, the first 24 hours was pretty rough and most of it was anesthesia related. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit later and some other questions, but just, um, really, really foggy and out of it and not feeling, um, like I like could form sentences, knew where I was. I felt quite drugged. I don't think at the time I realized how drugged I felt until like a day later. And I was like, Whoa, that was weird. So that was hard. And then just, just not knowing to what to expect with all of that had way too many hospital visitors in that first 24 hours because mm-hmm. we were so excited and it was the first like baby or grandchild for miles on any side of anything. And, um, so that was, that was unpleasant. I would say the first 24 hours after, and I'll, I think in a C-section, I kind of include that in the birth story, honestly, because 
pain medication and anesthesia is just, it's, it's, you're not going to have a C-section without anesthesia, right? Like it's an in, it's an inextricable part of the story. Um, whereas a vaginal birth may have some medical or, you know, pain management intervention, maybe not, but with a C-section, like the anesthesia is just a part of the story. And I think the most challenging anesthesia experience I had was the first one and they got so much better after that. So that is my most challenging. How about you? Um, definitely the first, definitely Jacob. I mean, so that was a hospital birth and, and I did switch practices, um, to a midwife practice. And I think I just had higher expectations than was probably fair. I mean, it was a midwife practice, but part, part of an OB practice, right? So I got the CNM, there was two, um, certified nurse midwives and then the practice of like maybe four OBs, but they, it was still a very hospital practice. And so there were just certain things that like were going to be the way that they were. And, um, I remember being really obsessed. I have, um, I had really bad back labor with all of my kids. Mm -hmm. And of course with the first one, it was just a longer labor. So the back labor was not only surprising, I didn't see that coming. Um, but also just like it never really, the pain never really goes away. It's not like, um, you don't get a break. I've had, yeah, I don't really get as much of a break. Like the, the back pain is just kind of like at a low level there all the time. And so it, it's, just painful. And like, I couldn't get comfortable. And I had read, um, that there's this thing called a tens unit, which is like, it, it's like electrotherapy on your skin sort of. And I think what it does is it messes with your nerve endings and your nerves get confused okay. is the easiest way to explain it. And I knew this, this hospital advertised that they had one. So I was like really fixated on getting that. And I mean, you know, sometimes you think something is going to be the solution and maybe it would have been, maybe it wouldn't have been, but like they couldn't find it. Like it was oh. in the basement or something and they kept Gosh. going to find it and then coming back and they couldn't find it. And I was like, I had set myself up that that was going to be the thing. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing that was really like, I just had this in my head that that was going to be the thing that was going to get me through. And who knows if it even would have worked or if I would have liked it. Um, but I was also really young. I was 20 and I, I do feel like I was treated kind of like I was dumb and like, I didn't know things and I knew a lot. And so that was really frustrating. Mm-hmm. I remember having nurses accusing me of holding my breath. And I was like, I'm not holding my breath. I'm just breathing really slow. Like I, it was just like, I feel like everywhere I turned, there was someone underestimating me and that was really frustrating. Um, and I really didn't want an epidural because I really was kind of freaked out about like the loss of control. Um, and like the way that, you know, I had read that like after that, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the interventions, interventions can kind of then like pile on. So you've got one and now your emotion, like now you can't get up and what happens if the night turns into a spinal headache and all this stuff. So like that was kind of in the back of my head and I really didn't want that to happen. And, and I think my midwife was trying to make, to help me there, but then she suggested a narcotic instead. And I would, I should have just had the epidural really, if it was going to be between the two, because I didn't know this at the time, but narcotic medication, I, it really has an effect on me. And it made me feel mm. completely out of control, super loopy. Um, I still felt all the pain. Yeah. So, you know, I, but I just couldn't really do much about it. Yeah. And then Jacob's heart rate dropped a little bit and I had to get on my hands and knees, which at the time was so uncomfortable because I was like so loopy and my back yeah. hurt. So it was just like one thing after another. I just feel like I wasn't in a great empowered place when he was finally born. And so, um, and even after, like, I remember being in the, you know, that in the recovery room or, um, you know, then they move you to the 
maternity floor or whatever it is, mm-hmm. the new mom floor. And the nurse came in and said, oh, you know, what's your, are you in pain? I said, I'm a little sore. And she's like, okay, well, and she just gives me a pill. And I didn't realize, I think it was like Percocet or something. Mm-hmm. It was something really mm-hmm. strong. Yeah. And I was so loopy for the rest of the night. Like they wouldn't let me hold him. Like it was just like, it just felt like one thing after another. And if someone had said, this is going to make you really tired or like, by the way, this is kind of like a Vicodin or something. Maybe I would have been like, oh no, I don't really need that. But I was thinking it was like really strong Tylenol. So I wasn't, I just didn't like, there were things I knew and there were things I didn't know. And I just felt, I didn't feel super hurt. So, um, Overall, it all turned out fine in the end. I had a healthy baby. Uh, I was fine. Like, my recovery was easy enough. That's one of the benefits of having a baby at 20. Yeah. But definitely just, like, in all, like physically, emotionally, and mentally, it was challenging in all three ways. Yeah. Which led to the decisions I made after that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, on the total flip side, Kristen wanted to know the funniest thing that happened as part of one of your births. And I, again, I can go first if you need a minute to think here. Yeah. Yes. Do you have a good story? I don't know that I have a story. Okay. That's okay. We're in the moment here. I'll tell my story. And if you don't think of one, that's totally fine. So mine's actually the night before. And maybe I've told this story on the podcast. I don't remember telling it recently. But the night before Violet was scheduled to be born, Reed was two. Yeah, he was two and a half. And um, we had had the stomach bug as a family about two and a half weeks earlier, like a crazy stomach bug that went through the whole family. But we'd been we had been healed and healthy from that for a good, I'm going to say two weeks. And the night before Violet was born, Reed is refusing to eat. He's super grumpy. He said, I don't remember if he said his tummy hurt. He was two and a half. He was very verbal. So he was probably like telling us his tummy hurt. And I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, like it's back. Like the the family stomach bug is back and I'm I'm like spiraling in my brain because I'm scheduled to go into the hospital the next day and everyone knows how stomach bugs like go through a household. And this is a yes. January baby also by the way. It's that time of year when like that winter time of year when everything's going around. Allegra's in preschool, so I'm thinking in my head, I can't send them to Stacy's tomorrow cuz she's pregnant. She's got little kids. I can't send a stomach flu kid. So then someone else is going to have to stay with my kids and then I'm going to get the stomach while I'm like on the operating table and I'm spiraling and spiraling and I'm rocking him. I'm rocking him like to sleep and he's so upset and he barfs all over me, like literally (gasps) as as barfy as you can be all over me. And I, this is gross. I, but I smell it and I'm like, that just smells like spoiled milk. And I go, Bri, go check the sippy cup that's in the fridge right now. And Brian pulls out this sippy cup that is just basically filled with rancid milk. So I'd been giving my two-year-old milk that had, you know, when you take a sippy in and out of the fridge, like throughout the day or over a couple of days and like we were, I was refrigerating it, but it had just started to turn and nobody noticed. And so my poor child had drank like a whole sippy of spoiled milk <laughs> and barf everywhere. And as soon, but it was for me, it was this realization that we weren't all going to get the stomach flu. It was just stinky milk. And so I was, you're I've like, never yes. been so happy to have been barfed on. I was like, this is great news, everyone. Cause I, I, I think I was like texting and making plans. I was so convinced we all were getting sick and then nope, I had just poisoned my child with rancid milk. So that's a little funny story. That's uh, more like the night before birth. I don't have any funny like operating table uh, stories. Although I will say that my surgeon when Reed was born and they, everyone was talking about what they did on Memorial day weekend. Cause he's born June 1st. And on that year, it was the day after Memorial day. And I, I just remember being like, this is so surreal that people like have my body open to the, 
world. And they're talking about like the barbecues they went to. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> Sarah, I can't think of a funny birth story either. Like I just, and I know there are probably so many, like I'm sure there were probably, I remember lots of laughing. Like I remember lots of like, especially with the two, three, four, and five, just lots of like low level pleasant moments. Like yeah. it felt like a lot of just like a very fun time. Um, kind of a party atmosphere, but I don't remember any like hijinks. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I do have a really funny picture that I'll try to dig up of my sister, Catherine, who was at Owen's birth and she brought Quinn who is Owen's cousin, obviously. Uh-huh. And he's about 10 months, nine, eight, nine, ten 10 months older than Owen. And there's a picture of both Quinn and Kathleen, where they look horrified. <laughs> I know they weren't at any moment horrified, but somehow like a um, candid I think the midwife's assistant was running around taking pictures of everybody and they look, I'm going to try to dig that picture up because it is hilarious, <laughs> but it's, but that was like afterward talking about that. Um, that's yeah, really funny because a nine month old baby isn't actually going to be reacting to a birth anyway. So like it's, right. it's not possible for, it's not possible, but somehow there was just this picture of the two of them just looking like, uh, it's so funny. I'm, I'll, I'll dig it up somewhere. because I'd love to share that one. That's really good. Sarah, our sponsor, Haya Health, makes a kid's daily multivitamin that parents can feel great about giving their kids because they have no added sugars or dyes. And our kids who have tried Haya vitamins have loved them, which is important, right? Because what good is a bottle of vitamins that your kid won't take? Haya was founded by two dads who didn't like the ingredients label on some of the popular children's vitamins they were seeing on store shelves, so they got to work developing a formula that would help fill the most common nutrient gaps in modern kids' diets. Haya's chewable kids' vitamin is made with a blend of 12 organic fruits and vegetables and then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals. They're also vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, and nut-free. Haya manufactures their vitamins right here in the USA with globally sourced ingredients, and then they ship their chewable vitamins directly to your door on a pediatrician-recommended schedule. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. You're going to get 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, go to HayaHealth.com slash MomHour. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash MomHour and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. We are welcoming back Vionic as a sponsor today. And Sarah, I will be honest, I was sorting through my warmer weather wardrobe the other day and it could seriously use a refresh, but you know what's good to go? My shoes. I've got a great selection to choose from thanks to the Vionic Vitals collection. And lately the pair I keep putting on again and again is the Uptown Loafer. I have two pairs, one in sand suede and the other in camel leather, but please don't make me pick a favorite. Oh, I won't. I'll let you keep both. That's so funny, Megan, because I was a little jealous of your Uptown Loafers. I was the last one on our team to get a pair, but I just did. I also got mine in the sand suede, and I think I've worn them like four times this week. They really finish off a cute spring outfit. The Vionic Vitals collection has the best essential styles for everyday wear to get you ready for spring. And no matter what shoes you choose, you'll be on the go in comfort because every single pair of Vionic shoes delivers their trademark Viomotion technology for a difference you can feel. Bionic sandals, sneakers, and flats all offer incredible support, stability, and cushioning, and every pair comes with a 30-day risk-free trial, so it's easy to try them out. Use code THEMOMHOUR15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order at bionicshoes.com when you log into your account. That's a one-time use only. Bionic Shoes. 
wearable well-being for your feet. Okay, so continuing right along, Christine asked a question and lots of people kind of chimed in that this is an important topic. So Christine says, I would love to hear about any situation where you were a real, true advocate for yourself. So I love this question too. And I think that this is, my answer is going to be maybe a little longer than it needs to be. No, go But for it. um, it's going to be exactly as long as, as it needs to be, I guess. So I feel like this is one of those things that kind of evolves, right? So I would say with my first pregnancy and birth, I really tried to advocate for myself, but it's like I was missing something in my toolbox. Mm. And I don't exactly know what that was. Like I changed practices pretty late. I think I was like 30 weeks when I changed um, to the midwife practice. And I do think it would have been much worse if I had not. Like I was, the OB I was seeing was so dismissive, like wouldn't even discuss things with me in any kind of way that was like how it was just, it was really, really bad. So I think even by making that move, mm-hmm. that was like advocating for myself. But then what I didn't know how to do was take it the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, also not having any real experience giving birth yet <laughs> and being young and, and knowing that it wasn't just my midwife that I was dealing with. Um, it was also the nursing staff and everybody who's on, like everyone who's in the room is part of your birth story in a new birth experience and, and especially in a hospital setting. So I think I kind of had this idea that if I went in and had this midwife in my corner, that I would kind of naturally get what I wanted. And I just didn't realize how it worked. So Mm -hmm. it was like I was trying, but I just didn't know enough. Yeah. And then probably moving away from that environment and moving into um, an out of hospital environment was the first big, big true step for advocating for myself. And then I didn't really, and then it kind of made it so I didn't really have to after that. until Clara, I will say I wound up with, um, a totally different midwife who I had never known before because we moved. And it was one of those situations where I would have maybe even gone back to a hospital birth, but I would not have given birth at the local hospital. I had just heard such bad things about it. And then the closest one beyond that one was like an hour away. And I had pretty fast labors and I was like, yeah. Oh man, I do not want to give birth on baby. the side of the road. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like really having a baby on the highway is not uh, part of my plan in life. And just all the complications that would add. And like the nearest birth center was more than an hour away. So I wound up with the only home birth midwife who would, who practiced here. And I just didn't like her. I didn't like her from the beginning. I, mm-hmm. She made me nervous. It was the only time I've ever had white coat syndrome. I've never had that before. And I truly had it with her. Like my blood pressure, which is normally quite low, would shoot up. Is when that what they over. call it, just, it when, like, yeah, when you, white coat syndrome? It's just, yeah. just like anxiety about even the presence like of medical anxiety. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I never yeah. heard that. Um, I had never had that before and she just freaked me out and there wasn't. Ex- so, but then I kept thinking to myself, well, this is my fifth, you know, I'm, I'm, I didn't just fall off the turnip, off the turnip truck. This is my fifth go round. I know how all this works. I've never had a complication. Like I know how the birth process works. And so I'll know if something is right or wrong. And like, she's just going to be there to kind of sign, sign the paperwork. (laughs) Right. right? And like clean up. So, and that's a terrible way to look at it. Obviously she brought her professional skills to the, obviously I'm not downplaying that at all, but just like, it wasn't a good fit for me. You know what it was? And I would just, if anybody's listening to this and, and thinks that they are are considering an out of hospital birth, I didn't feel like she was actually comfortable doing home births. And that Mm. is the biggest red flag, like a home birth midwife, has to be 110% confident mm-hmm. in the safety of what they're doing and like their ability to handle uh, an emergency and to know what to do. And 
I feel like she was not confident. Yeah. And so then I wasn't confident and it just, it like set us up to almost be, we almost had like an adversarial relationship uh-huh. at times. It was really weird. But the thing that really pops into my head was after Clara was born, very easy birth. Um, and she started tugging on my umbilical cord, which you're not supposed to do. The midwife. And did. because not, my, the midwife not, did. Not and Clara for a second. No, not like, Clara. Yeah. She's allowed to tug on it because she's attached. <laughs> but so, you know, the cord is clamped. I'm nursing Clara. And I, I held my hand up and I said, it always takes a little while for my placenta to come. Like, I know, I'll know when it's time because I'll, I'll have like a big contraction. Yeah. It'll probably be 15 minutes and then I will deliver it and we'll be good. And I'm kind of a bleeder, but it wasn't, you know, I'm a, I'm a reddish haired person and we have reputations for being big bleeders, but I've never had a, I've never bled too much. Like it's just never been a problem. And she just got antsy about it and wouldn't leave her hands off my placenta and like, or off my, off my umbilical cord and kept tugging on it. And I was like, I don't think it's ready. I don't think it's ready. I don't think it's ready. And it comes out and there's like a chunk missing. That's not good. You don't want a chunk missing because that means your body retained it, which is what happens when people go tugging on umbilical cords. They should just leave alone. And so I was like, that's not right there. It's still in there. And so anyway, the whole thing was like, she didn't exactly listen, but even John was like about to spring into action. Like he knew that wasn't right. I knew it wasn't right. I knew she should have kept her hands off of it. And she kind of was like, oh, you know, it'll probably just expel itself in a minute or maybe just a clot. And I'm like, no, you need to go. Now you need to get that out. So it ended up just being stressful. But I did. I did know what was up, you know, and I did say, like, you need to knock that off and stop. And like there was more to the story than Mm -hmm. that. And some of it, I'm sure, is a little foggy because it's been almost 13 years. Amazingly. But it did feel like one of those things. I, it was like hard one because it took me five babies to finally be in a position where I felt like I really knew what was going on mm-hmm. better than anybody else around me. And I was more conf- like I was truly the expert in that situation. Yeah. Like my body, I know exactly what's happening. I've done this before. Yep. Um, and I just like kind of told her off a little bit. Yeah. And it just, you know, whatever. After that, um, I never had to really see her again after the postpartum visit. So yeah. whatever. I also think that I this is like a totally separate thing, but I think that I had to like fight with her to get her to knock something off my bill. I don't remember why, oh. but I think I won that too. So yeah, I felt like a couple of wins in a row. Yeah. How about you? Going out that was strong. A long story. Baby number five. <laughs> Going no, out strong. I, I've never heard that part of the story. So, um, no, that was great. Uh, for me, it is around the anesthesia and the drugged fogginess that I felt in the, um, like 24, really like the 12 hours after C-section with the first birth. Um, it was morphine or a morphine combination that they had given me to, to bridge the gap as anesthesia wears off and pain sets in. Um, and that is what had made me feel really bad. Um, there's also other side effects with a lot of this coming off of anesthesia and going on to narcotics. It's you, your face gets itchy. Um, there's, you get nauseous. Like there are some crazy anesthesia drugs do crazy things to you side effects wise. And what I didn't know and nobody had told me was that there are so many different uh, drugs that they can use that are safe and effective. And it's not just like one. It's not one cocktail. Um, And I didn't know that the first time. And what I feel proud of myself is I just told my OB at some point, I mean, not not at the last minute, at some point, probably in the third trimester, maybe when we were talking about how did it go last time or what, you know, what do you want different or whatever? I just said, I don't want to feel like that again. And I explained exactly 
you know, that the operation, the, the hour in the operating room was fine. I have clear memories. I didn't feel afraid. I felt well supported, but I didn't like that come down of the 12 hours after. And my OB was like, great, well, I'm making a note. We're not going to give you, she told me what they had given me. She looked what they had. She said, I'm going to recommend this alternative. Um, and I, I'm not going to have the names of what I did and didn't take here, but irrelevant. Um, so she made me feel like she was listening to me, but I also felt like, well, I'm the one who's going to talk to the anesthesiologist that day. And I wanted to make sure like, I don't want, whatever happened last time, I don't want to have that happen this time. And, um, he was great. He was like, okay, I'm looking. And he's like, also we can, we can adjust things or we, you know, you have a lot of say in, in this. And so I just learned that the anesthesiologist is very instrumental in all of this and that, and that not all drugs are created equal. And like you said, Megan, you react really strongly to narcotics and we're, if you have, um, dared to stay off drugs for most of your adult <laughs> life, you don't know the different right. ways that different types of substances affect you. How could you, I mean, I could tell you how alcohol could affect me, but that's not relevant today. So like, um, I guess the, the time, no one's offering that during surgery. <laughs> no, <though>. exactly. Um, <laughs> So I think that advocating for myself was just being really clear that I wanted another baby. I, I was going to get another baby via C-section, but there was a whole piece of the thing that happened the first time that I did not want to repeat. And I didn't exactly know what to ask for, except like, I don't want that to happen again. And I feel fortunate that I was listened to and like, okay, great. So here are some other options. Also, we can't totally predict it. So this might also right. not feel great, but we are going to try something else. And then just learning that how instrumental that anesthesiologist is throughout the process that they're, they're seated at your shoulder the whole time. And you can say like, Ooh, I'm feeling a little woozy or like I'm, right. I'm feeling pain or whatever. So that was, um, the advocating around that was the mine for me. Well, I, I love that you mentioned all that because it reminds me, and I think it was maybe the episode we did about advocating, um, for a child, but it reminded me, I think maybe I talked about the disconnect sometimes that can happen in a medical situation where it's like one person or like one doctor ordered something. Mm -hmm. And then the further you get away from that person who ordered it, the yes. less like the lot, like the logic starts to break down because n none of the people administering it necessarily had anything to do with the, the requesting of it. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of when I had my hysterectomy and they wouldn't stop giving me IV fluids, but they also were insisting that I pee before they took, Oh, well, right. no, I didn't have a catheter anymore, but they, they just, they were like, you have to pee. I'm like, I you're blowing me up so much. Like I can't, like I'm too full now. It's so uncomfortable. Oh, that's right. They were saying they were going to have to catheterize me. And I was like, you just need to stop giving me more fluids. Yeah. I've had so much fluid. I've been drinking water. I'm full of fluid, but I can't like, now I'm all blown up like a balloon. And I really had to go through like seven people to get them to, to go, Oh, okay. Well, let me call the doctor mm -hmm. who ordered this many bags of IV fluid. It wasn't set in stone. It's not like I was going to die if I didn't get another bag of fluid. It was just what had been ordered. Right. So you kind of almost had to go back to the source. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't know that the first time, nope. right? Just like you said, like you, you, don't know. you would have no way to know yeah. your first time. And they don't, you know, uh, the, the providers, it isn't always that they're uncaring or like bad in any way. Um, there's so many different reactions, different people have to different things. And I think right. that is something I often go in very naive about. Um, I can put, I think you have a natural, like, um, not distrust, but you have a natural skepticism that really serves you where you're like, mm, that doesn't smell right to me. Whereas I have like a natural 
tendency to overtrust systems that seem like they know what is going on. Right. And in the medical system, like I can really assume like, wow, this medical school sounds really hard. Like they really know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah. And I have learned like they do and they have incredible knowledge. They still don't know exactly how my body is going to react to this one right. drug. Like I have to step up and play a role here in reporting what I'm feeling and advocating for what I need. So that's probably like a whole episode in and of itself, but really good to talk about. Yeah. Um, well, Haley wants to know which health professional did we find to be the most helpful during delivery? I'll just jump in really quick because it's just a continuation. I'm not I don't know if it, most helpful is the right phrase, because obviously my surgeons and the nurses and everybody in that OR was so great. But I did not realize that the anesthesiologist sits at your shoulder the entire time. And what's so funny is they haven't been part of your um obstetrics care, your pregnancy care at all, you meet them that day. And then they are one of the most um, involved people in the operation and they're right by your head. So they talk to you. And so they're almost like um, air traffic control for the operation. So like for me, at least my surgeon would tell me what was going on and like, I'm going to cut through this and you're going to feel this. But she was kind of far, like a few feet away from me standing up and I'm lying down. Whereas the anesthesiologist is right there in my ear and would say, okay, you might feel this. Or I'd say, ooh, I, I feel there's different um, side effects that can come with that spinal, like your shoulder pinches, or you can get a sudden headache or your blood pressure drops. And um, the anesthesiologist just would talk the whole time. And I really do well with that kind of like information, like this is what's happening now and this is what's going to happen next. So if you have never had a C-section, that is surprising because you've never met this person. They're not a part of your care team that you've identified in terms of like OB and all that. And yet they end up being like a huge part of your birth story. So I had good, I had some anesthesiologists I liked better than others, but they were all instrumental. I, I love that because I've only had one experience with the anesthesiologist and um, it was just very chill. That's what I remember. Like it just felt like not, he was a very unconcerned. So if that guy had been like at my shoulder while I was having a cesarean, <laughs> I feel like it would have been, it would have been a nice calming yeah. um, influence. Um, so for me, because four of my five births were, were not in hospital, um, basically all there is there is a midwife and then either a second midwife or the midwife's assistant. And so there wasn't, it's not quite the same. It's not like you've got um, you know, that nurse that you kind of like buddy up with and then they become your, you know, your pal and like your, your friend and advocate. I didn't have a doula. Um, although it's not unheard of to have a doula when you have like a midwife attended home or mm -hmm. um, birth center birth, it's kind of redundant at yeah. that point. Cause the midwife does that. So yeah, I just, I can't really answer that question except to say like the midwife kind of was just omnipresent and, um, and probably the most, the most impactful. Do you, did you have a favorite midwife? We talked about the one that you didn't love. So I'm guessing it wasn't number one or number five. Was there a standout midwife in the middle there? Yeah. So the two that I had, um, at my, let's see, Owen and, and well, sorry, Will and Owen, I believe both of the midwives who I worked with at the practice were both there for both. Mm, okay. At least for part of it. And they were like, like at that point they were like my aunties. Yeah. You know yeah. I mean? So, um, Kip and Clarice, definitely. Oh, nice. Yep. Nice. 
Okay, so we've just got a couple of questions left that we're able to get to today. And again, Sarah, I do think we could probably do actually like four hours of content about birth <laughs> stories. Um, but Lauren asked me specifically this question. She said, I've birthed two babies without pain medication. I'm about to have my third. It still makes me nervous thinking about it. Um, and then she said, did you ever feel like you got good at having a med-free birth by number five? Did you have a method? Curious to hear how you approached birth and your strategy for pain, et cetera, by the time you got to the last kid. And um, so, Lauren, to be honest, like, I never got over the nerves because every time, first of all, you every time, even, even by the time you get to number five, like, I kind of had an idea of how my births were starting to go. I knew more or less what to expect. Um, but except you kind of have a little baby amnesia, like it happens to all of us. And then you'll ask yourself this question, like, was it worse than I remember? Was it different than I remember? Did I forget something? And then there's like, no one really wants to go through it all again. Like, yeah. you know, you can look at it very stoically and be like, I know I can get through this, but that's not the same as like jumping up and down saying like, wow, I can't wait to have contractions all night and squeeze a baby out of my vagina. So, um, <laughs> it's not quite the same. Right. So I, I think I did get good at it both in that I, was able to kind of get past the nerves about it and get to the part where I was really looking forward. Like, like just not like where I was just grabbing the bull by the horns mm -hmm. and jumping in. I remember having a pep talk with myself <laughs> in the bathroom, I think with Clara. And I was just like, I, and I actually purposely told John to stay asleep. Like, you know, I, my, my water broke and I was like, okay, well I'll call the midwife. It's going to be a little time before she gets here. It's probably going to be an hour or two before things really get moving. So you just stay in bed because I didn't want that watched feeling. Yep. And I just wandered around my house by myself and like pep talked myself in my bathroom mirror every now and then. <laughs> um, I knew I did learn because I did water births. And for me, that was like probably the, the thing that would have like, even if I knew there was an amazing um, hospital practice that I felt really confident in, if I couldn't have a home or a water birth, I think that would have been a deal breaker for mm -hmm. me because it was so instrumental in, I guess, my success in, mm -hmm. in, um, doing things the way I wanted to. So I knew by the time Clara came along to get in the tub earlier and that that would move things along faster. Like I just learned. So I feel like I got good at some parts and then there's the parts that you just, right. You know, right. That are just are what they are. Well, yeah. I, I love that. And I obviously can't speak to the getting better at um, unmedicated births, but I do think I what I relate to about what you said is that feeling like, oh my gosh, there's so much that's going to happen in the next 24 hours. And it hasn't even like, we're just at the beginning of it. And that was overwhelming each time with the C-sections, even though I knew what to expect. It was like, I cannot believe that at the end of this, there is going to be a baby because it feels like so many things you know, could go wrong if I was looking at it from an anxious perspective, but also just like so much has to happen in the next like yeah. eight <laughs> hours. And that part never got easier. But for me with the recovery, things did get easier each time. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So then Cassandra asks, I'd love to know what your biggest regrets were or what you would change about any of your birth stories if you could. Sarah, you want to go first? Yeah, because I, I do have a specific one. And regret is a is a very strong word because I don't feel super regretful. But I didn't. Um, I decided to do a repeat C-section. I feel really good about the reason I had a C-section the first time. I, I never felt shamed into that or shamed because of it. 
My second pregnancy, I defaulted into a repeat C-section very much because that was common practice in the circles I ran in and in the practice where I was. And um, I never even really asked about a VBAC the second time. And I regret that I didn't at least pursue that line of questioning because later learning, I learned that I really would have been a very good candidate for a VBAC. The second time, um, and I just honestly, it like wasn't in the water around me. Like I wasn't, that wasn't, I wasn't reading and consuming a lot of like VBAC related things or people who were super into VBAC. And I was the, the women I knew who had C-sections all had repeat C-sections. And so it was never presented to me as an option. And I also didn't really like look into it. And then I like had a, a hot second in my third pregnancy where I was like, well, this is going to be my last pregnancy would be nice to be in labor maybe sometime. Like I, I had such good C-section experiences that I didn't, I didn't feel drawn to a VBAC because the C-section had been so traumatic. And I think a lot of, for a lot of people that is, they have a really negative experience with a C-section and, and VBAC feels like the thing they want to explore. And for me, I had very fine experiences with C-sections. So I didn't ever explore the VBAC. And then I, I regret that. I regret that I didn't ask the questions, even if I might've ended up with the exact same outcome. But when I say regret, it's like a very non-attached regret. Like this has not kept me up at night when I'm talking about it. I don't feel like sad or ashamed. I'm just like, yeah, that I would have done that differently. Put it that way. I would have done that differently. And I didn't. And I'm like, huh, why didn't you ask the question at least? <laughs> so, yeah. And I think one thing that I'm not sure we exactly hit on this yet, and it's really important. I think to point out is that um, a lot of women who wind up having an emergency C-section or have to for some complication or just wind up with one because, you know, that intervention um, spiral happens, have huge regrets and feel very traumatized, sometimes just by the fact that they had one, Yep. Um, not even necessarily because it was super traumatic in and of itself, but just because they didn't want it. And some really don't care that much. And either, um, either response is totally valid. Like, some people really just want to get in and, and get the baby out and, you know, whatever the method is that has to happen to have that, you know, to, to reach that goal is totally fine with them. And there's not a whole lot of second guessing or regretful feelings. And for a lot of women, it's a really big deal. And I mm-hmm. think that sometimes we honor one experience and not the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they're both very, very valid regard and whether it's cesarean or not, like whatever went right or wrong. Um, and whatever, whether you're very philosophical and just say, well, that's what had to happen for me to get this baby in the world. Or whether you're like, man, I really wish something had gone differently. Like there's definitely other people who are in that same boat and there are resources for you. And I, yeah. I know that can be something that really affects the way you feel about yourself as a mom and all kinds of things. So just validating that both, both ways of feeling about it are okay. Absolutely. I totally agree. How about you? Do you have any regrets? Well, like what you said, regret is kind of a strong word for me. I do. I don't have regrets for myself anymore. It's been so long since that very first birth. And the the four that came after it were really pretty easy um, in the grand scheme of things. And even with some little hiccups here and there, I don't, there's nothing I feel terrible about it that I go back and change. I think with that first one, it's almost like I'd go back in time and help out poor young mama Megan, who now doesn't feel really like me anymore anyway. It's, I feel like you said, very detached. Like I would, it would be like almost helping out someone else because I grew so much after that. And it's, I do think that there might've been some really sweet moments that could have happened had I not been feeling terrible and like 
super loopy and drugged up after, during and after Jacob was born. But I also feel like it didn't have a lot of long lasting effects on the way I felt about being a mom or and we bonded really quickly. So um, regret is just a strong word at this point. And I think maybe that's a hopeful thing. If you're like two years away from, you know, a birth experience that didn't go the way you wanted it. I know for a fact my feelings were much stronger mm-hmm. when Jacob was two or mm-hmm. even four as compared to now. Yeah. Where I'm like, okay, it's just been a long time. And, you know, any feelings I had about that were softened. Yeah. Um, I guess I kind of wish Owen had not had his elbow sticking out at a 90 degree <laughs> elbow or a 90 degree angle when he came out of the birth canal because that really hurt. Okay. That's all. Very That's, specific. If I could just say, if he would have just tucked that little elbow right up against his body, that would have been great. It would have been just a little bit better. I have a really specific one, a really specific one. So I didn't talk as much about how much better my recovery was the second two times, but it's kind of implied. I really did much better coming off the anesthesia and getting back on my feet and moving around. And my C-section recoveries were pretty standard after that. But with Violet, I got a little bit um, cocky. I also thought I know how this goes. I know my body. I know what I need to do. And one of the things they want you to do is delay solid foods for a long time. Like they don't want you to eat for like 48 hours. You're supposed to start with clear liquids and broth and then yogurt. But at the same time, your digestion doesn't start to get moving again, which is really important until you're eating. So it's this like, it's a very prolonged, slow time of introducing foods back in and prolonged. I mean, over the course of like a day and a half. So with Violet, I was convinced that I was ready for oatmeal. And I was like, look, I know how this goes. I know what I need to do. I need some food. I want you to um, clear me for the next level in the hospital. You have to be, they like unlock the next level of food that you're allowed to order. You're not allowed (laughs) to order anything else. You can order anything with a clear liquid, but you can't order oatmeal or whatever. And I convinced them to um, like accelerate me to the oatmeal level. And then I promptly vomited it all up. And it does not feel good to vomit when you have had recent abdominal surgery and all of your spinal has worn off. So um, yeah, that's a little, a a very small, insignificant regret that I probably should have waited another half a day before the oatmeal after C-section number three. Well, let, let that be a cautionary tale to leave the listeners with. Right. Cause that's one thing you actually could have done something about. Totally. Totally. Whereas I, I couldn't have done anything about Owen's elbow. It was no, where it was. True. That's true. Yeah. Um, well, Hey, before we totally wrap up, um, maybe we should just remind people that at one point we were going to make a pregnancy and birth podcast and that that particular project didn't come to fruition in the form that um, it was going to, but that it could yeah. still someday. I feel like we get a lot of questions about this and I'm we heading do. off. I'm heading off the 1400 emails about Are you yeah. make a podcast about this stuff. Yes. So I, the long story short, we did make a pilot episode. We did um, engage six moms to tell their stories, got a lot of great material from them. And then the idea was that we were going to kind of like shop it around. Like we were like a little mini, you know, pilot TV like a, production. Like, yeah. A, yeah. And while we were in the middle of doing that, there was like this pandemic <laughs> and stuff. And um, that kind of changed what it was like to be pregnant and give birth for a while. And so the story just, the stories that we collected, which were fantastic and amazing, started to just feel a little less relevant in the light of what was happening. So we just decided to focus on other projects, but I still love the idea of a podcast called Expecting. We still own that, you know, name and all that. 
And at some point, I do think we'll bring something back. And also, we've got um, a pilot episode and then a second episode fully produced. So I have thought there may be a way for us to eventually um, use, use those. Use those. And like maybe even if it's just sharing it with you all, just the problem with that is that then you'd have to deal with the frustration of knowing you'll never know the rest of the story, which right. might be, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's a little yeah. behind the scenes that in this business sometimes things get made and never like reach just like in movies and tv you know like all the stuff that gets right. made and never or in magazine articles and stuff and never never airs so um we get a lot of emails asking about expecting still after all this time yeah so wanted to head that one off at the pass um i also wanted to let everybody know that our more than mom episodes on alternate sundays are back coming this sunday so we took a little summer hiatus from the More Than Mom series. And if you're brand new or um, just kind of just jumping into our podcast, the More Than Moms are usually every other Sunday, so two Sundays a month. And they give us license to talk about things outside of parenting and motherhood. So everything from fashion to movies to what we're reading to really silly, fluffy stuff and like hypothetical questions and all of that. So if you, if anyone has a suggestion for a more than mom topic, um, we'll be doing them twice a month, you know, probably until next July and August. So I would love people's ideas for more than mom episodes. I think that would be fun. So we're hello at the momhour.com is how you send us those emails. Yeah. Looking forward to it. All right. We'll talk to everybody soon. The mom hour is supported by partners like Erica. Erica is the social media health app for teens that gives them the tools to unplug when they need to for improved health, study focus, sleep, and daily balance. Erica was built by a dad of three boys who saw that teens themselves were really becoming self-aware to the risks of social media, and he wanted to help them self-regulate. Erica works to hide distracting apps from your phone at the touch of a button, keeping them out of sight and out of mind without deleting your data. Tell your teens about Erica and save 20% on the Erica family plan with promo code THEMOMHOUR. Go to erica.app and search for plans. That's Erica with a K, E-R-I-K-A dot A-P-P and use code THEMOMHOUR to save 20%. Sarah, I have been having just the best time making my new podcast, The Teas Made. I launched back in November and so far I've covered topics like staying warm on cold winter walks, nurturing creativity, how to be a great host, and even Nordic secrets to loving winter. Well, you know I am fan number one of The Teas Made. It's got such a cozy vibe, and it seems like you've really hit your stride in covering topics like wellness, self-care, comforting rituals and routines, and home and family life. Just look for The Teas Made with Megan Francis wherever you get your podcasts, or head to theteasmade.com to find all the episodes.